tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spooktacular people. Welcome to this 94th episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Denise. And on this episode, we have a special guest joining us, Sylvia Schultz. How are you, Sylvia? I am fantastic. How are you guys doing tonight? We're great, and we're very excited to have you with us because our topic on this episode is the Peoria State Hospital. And as far as I'm concerned, Sylvia is the expert. She'll probably say she's not, but she, to me, is the expert on this location. So we're excited to have her here to pick her brain on that. And the way I see it, it's two against one, so we win. Uh, okay, I'll, I'll roll over. I'll show belly. <laughs> All right, Denise, why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about Sylvia? Sylvia is a paranormal investigator, writer, and host of the Lights Out podcast. She got involved in paranormal research while writing and researching her nonfiction book, Ghost of the Illinois River, in 2010. Her fascination with ghosts dates back to her childhood, as she is an avid reader who was raised on Grimm's fairy tales. A few years ago, she was inspired to write a collection of people's supernatural experiences at the Peoria State Hospital in Bartonville, Illinois. The project became the book, Fractured Spirits, Hauntings at the Peoria State Hospital. Both the book and her research were featured on an episode of Ghost Hunters, Prescription for Fear, which aired on January 30th of 2013. She lives in Illinois with her husband. She works at the Fund Elect District Library, and she also serves as a publicity director for Dark Continents Publishing. In addition to nonfiction, she also writes romance and horror. Well, that's very cool. I am a fellow writer, so I'm really impressed with how prolific you have been because I know how hard it is to write. So you've written quite a few books. I am actually no longer publicity director for Dark Continents Publishing. I am, however publicity director for Crossroad Press. Uh, Whitechapel Press put out my book, Hunting Demons, this past year, and they are also going to be putting out my the, the book that I'm currently working on, which is about one of the patients at the Peoria State Hospital. I'm sure we will get to that later on. It's a fascinating story. Well, very cool. Okay. And So is Hunting Demons, is that going to be Demons Demons or just... <laughs> Yes, it is Demons Demons. The the genesis for Hunting Demons came out of a conversation I had with a fellow ghost hunter um, January of last year. She came to me and she had been investigating for several years and knew I was an investigator as well. And she is also a Christian. Weird combination, I know. But yeah, she, she really believed in what she was doing. And she also was very strong in her faith. And she felt that she had been attacked by three demonic entities. And she came to me and told me this story. And she said, I want people to know about this. She said, I am one child of God. If it has happened to me, it has happened to other people. And I want people to know that there is help out there. So she shared with me this experience that she had had with these three demonic spirits. 
And we wrote it down and turned it into the book Hunting Demons. The first half of the book is a lot of demonic lore, history of exorcisms, the difference in attitude towards demons between Western and Eastern culture, which is just fascinating. And then the second half of the book is Linda's story. Wow. Well, Denise and I come from a Christian base. So for us, it's not weird to mix ghosts with Christianity. I think a lot, when you look at the church, they don't like to talk about it or do anything in regards to it because I think they're afraid when it comes to that stuff. So it's very good that she has gone forward with that because there's a lot of people when they go to their church, you know, their pastor or the elders there and ask for help, they get turned away so many times because either they don't want to mess with something that could be demonic or they just I don't know. I, obviously, it can't be that they don't believe it, because if you believe what the Bible says, you know, there's demons. So, Right. Yeah. That was her experience when she was trying to get help with this situation. The She would go to churches to try and get help from these demons that were attacking her. And she would get nearly the same response everywhere she went. The priests or the ministers would shake her hand and say, we'll pray for you. Mm. And so frustrated because they were literally keeping her and her problems at arm's length. We found that there, because we, even though we come from a Christian standpoint, we're not big into formalized church. And that's what we found with many things, not just with this subject, but they do tend to keep everything at arm's length. Yeah. Well, obviously... You are into ghosts and paranormal investigation. So what I'd like to know is what got you interested in the paranormal? Oh, man. True stories from my childhood. <laughs> Uh-oh. I have always adored true ghost stories. I did not grow up in a haunted house. I did not grow up being able to see dead people. I never had any sort of paranormal experience until I grew up and realized that one could actually go out looking for ghosts, and I thought that was pretty darn cool. But my childhood was filled to overflowing with books and stories, and the weirder the better. (laughs) (laughs) I devoured stories about the Bigfoot and the Bermuda Triangle and the Oak Island Money Pit and just all sorts of crazy, crazy stuff. That is where my heart lay is with true ghost stories because I love history. I love the fact that people that lived 150 years ago were much the same as we are today. They had the whole same hopes and fears and and dreams that we do today. And it was just very intriguing to me to read these stories that happened 150 years ago whose reverberations are still being felt today. So Sylvia, kind of with that and that fascination, we always love to ask this question, what do you think a ghost is? Well, for me, it depends on whether it's a residual haunting or an intelligent haunting. Um, if it's a residual haunting, it's just a snippet of time that has just worn itself thin with repetition. I'll add to that by saying that um, my husband and I used to own a bar, Eakin, where we live, and the building in which the bar was was extremely haunted. And we had intelligent hauntings and residual hauntings there. And there was one residual haunting in particular that it was just a woman who had had a terrible, terrible fight with her husband. And she just moped around the place and wouldn't interact with any of the mediums we brought in and wouldn't interact with any of the investigators. And it was just a very sad situation. She couldn't move on because she was just so mired in her own tragedy. But intelligent hauntings, I think that is 
a piece of the person's personality. And those are the fun ones. Those are the ones that if you're lucky, you get to interact with. And it's, I'm not sensitive at all. I can't see the dead. I can't hear the dead. But every once in a while, you get this sense of being able to interact with someone who's passed on. And that to me is just the most fascinating, precious thing, that communication. Very cool. On this episode, we're going to discuss the Peoria State Hospital. But before we do that, we want to point you at our website, historyghostbump.com. And Denise, if anybody would like to email us, where can they do that? At historyghostbump at gmail.com. And we did get a couple of emails. The first one is from April. She says, hi, ladies. Just wanted to take a minute to let you know that I'm very much enjoying your show. I will try to keep this brief. I'm so glad I've, quote unquote, met you via your podcast. I will be sure to give you a five-star review. I started listening because of the content. I love creepy stuff. I keep listening because of the two of you. You're both very charming. Well, there you go, Denise. You're charming. (laughs) So don't tell anybody. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, She said she just finished listening to our Bible podcast and was so saddened that she wanted to cry. I, too, am someone who is a follower of Christ. When you mentioned that you contacted a church to ask if you could attend and were told no. It hurt my feelings for two lovely people who were rejected. You were so cool, though, and let it roll off you. I understand not wanting to be where you're not wanted, but that church is really missing out. And then she said she's coming out of her rabbit hole, LOL. So look out, everybody. Well, thanks so much, April, for sharing that. And as we like to tell people, we're not really into the whole churchy thing. And so it doesn't really affect us when people are like, no, you can't hang out with us. I just always, the thing I said to her, Denise, is it's kind of sad because I can only imagine what Jesus would have to say about people who are telling people they can't come to the church. Um, probably the same, which is the shortest verse in the Bible. He wept. Could be. I would think. Denise, we should be exhausted because we have been doing some major traveling. I know we have. Tell <laughs> we, them about it. We got this from Lucy, who is traveling through Asia. She which says, I'm completely 100% jealous of. By the way, but go ahead. Hi, I have been traveling through Southeast Asia for the past five months and have loved having your podcast to keep me company. You've traveled with me through mountains, jungles, rice paddies, and beaches, through remote villages, rural towns, and crazy cities. Every long bus ride, train journey, boat trip, motorcycle spin, airplane flight, I have brought the spectacular crew with me. Thanks for such an amazing podcast. You guys are great adventure buddies. I feel both entertained and at home when I relax and listen to History Goes Bump. Thanks, you guys. I hope when I get back to the States, I can join you on one of your ghost tours. Well, thank you so much for that, Lucy. And wow, I'm exhausted, Denise. I'm exhausted, but I totally, I mean, that's one of my huge bucket lists of destinations in the world. I know every podcast of mine was like, oh, I'm going to put that on my list. But Asia has been a bucket list for forever. It sounds like she did the whole shebang. I mean, a little taste of everything. And she said she took the whole spectacular crew with her. So all of you listeners should be exhausted. I know. we had a great trip. But Diane, that does not mean I still don't get to do the Yangtze River in China in like four years. So just saying. Denise, we got a couple of messages over on the fan page. If you want to share those. And this one is from Emma. Hiya to all and Happy New Year. I've only just listened to the Dickens podcast. I'm from the Medway Towns area where he based a number of his books. If you're ever over here, I'll happily take you on a tour. And that has been duly noted just by the way. I went to school at Fort Pitt in Chatham, which is up the hill from his childhood home and is mentioned as Fort Pitt Field in the Pitt Pickwick Papers. That's like a tongue twister. I know you mentioned Dickens not being documented as haunting anywhere, but that's not exactly true. 
Local legend in Rochester State City walks the dry moat of Rochester Castle on Christmas Eve, which once served as a graveyard for Rochester Cathedral because in his will he wanted to be buried there, and he was instead interred at Poets' Corner. There are two Dickens festivals in Rochester, one in June and the other in December, which celebrate his works and characters. I also think the students at Gads Hill School, his former home, have the tale about him haunting there as well. And then Nisa added, And Garrison, North Dakota, does a Dickens festival every winter. It runs for three weekends starting on Black Friday. They have an actual double-decker bus, sleigh rides, fruitcake toss, competitions, and, of course, a play. That's about the only good use for fruitcakes. <laughs> I was just going to say, I think that's, I could handle that kind of fruitcake. <laughs> it would be hard to toss though because that stuff is heavy. heavy. I know. It's like, oh, so that's what you do with fruitcakes after all. <laughs> I guess it beats a cow patty toss. We want to welcome into the spooktacular crew, Bill. Hey, Bill. Ian. Hi, Ian. And Stuart. Hey, Stuart. And we got a couple of five-star reviews over at iTunes. The first one's from Chalks. For history lovers, you will love this podcast if you enjoy history. Thanks, Chalks. And Madcatter31. Love History Goes Bump five stars. This podcast combines my two favorite things. It's like stuff you missed in history class meets campfire stories. That is very awesome to hear because I love both of those shows and that was kind of the idea to combine those two things. How could it be any better? I really appreciate the thought and research put into the episodes. I'm a referral from Bizarre States and I'm so glad Jessica mentioned this podcast. P.S. I love hearing the Disney tidbits here and there. You guys are awesome and I look forward to each new episode. Well, thank you, Mad Catter. Denise? Yes? I think uh, you, I, and Sylvia should head on over to the Peoria State Hospital. Uh, yes, we should, and I'm more excited to be at this hospital. Become an executive producer of the History Goes Bump podcast for as little as a buck a month. For $5 a month, you can access exclusive content like the Haunted True Crime bonus cast. And for $10 and above a month, you get all that plus awesome History Goes Bump gear. Check out patreon.com slash history goes bump for more information. Or you can give us a one-time donation by clicking the donate button at historygoesbump.com. Effie Murnau was a silent film director in the 1920s, and apparently, in July of last year, his skull was stolen from his grave. Murnau was best known for his film Nosferatu, an unauthorized adaptation of Bram Stoker's Dracula. Prana Film Studios was unable to obtain rights to the book, so Count Dracula became Count Olaf, and he took on probably the most terrifying vampiric look of all. Murnau was buried in his family plot in Stronsdorf, about 12 miles southwest of central Berlin, after he died following a car crash in 1931. His brother's graves were left undisturbed, so this was a targeted grave robbing. Wax residue was found near the grave, and since candles are not necessary for light in the darkness anymore thanks to flashlights, authorities believe that the grave robbing has occult ties. This was not the first time the grave has been disturbed, so the cemetery might want to consider concrete. We're not sure if these skull thieves wanted to see if Murnau had perhaps become his creation, but stealing a man's skull is just plain odd. Are you afraid of the dark? That's just silly. 
What you should be afraid of is the thing that watches you sleep. <laughs> This day in history. On this day, January 4th in 1781, Charles Messier discovers M80, which is a globular cluster in the constellation Scorpio. Messier Object 80, as it is formally known, was one of the first discoveries made by Messier, who was a French astronomer and surveyor. M80 is estimated to be at a distance of 32,600 light years away, with a spatial diameter of about 95 light years. The cluster contains several hundred thousand stars, making it one of the more densely populated globular clusters in the Milky Way. M80 is unique in that it contains a large number of blue stragglers. These are stars that are believed to be younger than the rest of the cluster that they are located within, and they are blue and more luminous. One theory surmises that they are younger because they were captured by the cluster and are not really part of it. In 1860, a nova was found in the cluster. The Peoria State Hospital opened in 1901 in the village of Bartonville in Illinois. The asylum was a home for the mentally ill for 72 years, and it provided some of the state-of-the-art care at the time. But it was also the scene of some very tragic circumstances. Many people died here, both patients and staff. These tragedies combined with the fact that Bartonville was once Native American land, and it is an area surrounded by water and limestone, have quite possibly led to the Peoria State Hospital being rumored to be haunted. There seems to be many fractured spirits here at the Peoria State Hospital. Join us as we explore the history and hauntings of Peoria State Hospital with Sylvia Schultz. As we were discussing earlier before we went on to recording, I was talking to you about how much it seems to me that the Peoria State Hospital has a special place in your heart. Why is that? Well, <laughs> for one thing, the Peoria State Hospital is incredibly active paranormally, and it's very, very close to me geographically. I can hop on my motorcycle and be there in ten minutes, which is just. The most incredible privilege for me. Another thing is that this is so precious to me. When you say haunted mental asylum, people automatically assume pain and fear and abuse. You say haunted mental asylum, and your mind automatically goes all American Horror Story on you, <laughs> and <laughs> you you just say, "Well, okay, it's a mental asylum. It's haunted. There must have been horrible, horrible abuse there." I was so grateful to find out that this was not the case at the Peoria State Hospital. This asylum was an asylum in the truest sense of the word, a place of security, a place where people could go and be cared for and loved like they were family. Dr. George Zeller was one of the first superintendents of the asylum, and he was absolutely the most influential. And he had the most amazing way of treating the mentally ill. He treated them like family. He and his wife, Sophie, never had children. They considered the patients their children, and they passed that work ethic along to their staff, which made the Peoria State Hospital just a place of compassion and caring And respect for the patients that they treated. So yeah, that's that's the main part of why the Peoria State Hospital is so important to. The village where the asylum was built is called Bartonville. What can、yeah. you tell us about Bartonville? Bartonville. 
Jacksonville is um, just a few miles south of Peoria, which is the biggest town in this area, which is why it's called the Peoria State Hospital, not the Bartonville State Hospital. Bartonville sits on a bluff overlooking the Illinois River. And those, those of us who do investigation know that there are geographic components, geological components to any really strong haunting. And the bluff top on which Bartonville sits is a perfect storm <laughs> of things that will cause a place to be haunted. There's all sorts of running water. It sits just a few hundred yards away from the Illinois River, which is the longest river in the state. The hilltop itself is crisscrossed with tiny ravines and underground springs. If you go down in to the basement of the Pollock Hospital, which is one of the remaining buildings of the asylum, the tuberculosis ward. If you go down to that basement and you stand in the morgue, you're actually standing on three feet of a natural spring underneath the concrete under your feet. Wow. Yeah. There's a whole lot of limestone around. The Bowen building, the administration building, is built from limestone blocks that came from the oldest quarry in the United States in New Bedford, Indiana. So there is just a, a swirling maelstrom of things that, that come together to make Bartonville an extremely haunted place. Well, and, and our understanding, too, is... And I know this is, you hear it all the time. Well, that was Native American burial ground. Everybody wants to claim that or they say that. And I, we always joke that if that was true, then most of America would just be a big burial ground because everywhere exactly. claims that. There are a lot of people here and they all needed to be buried. Um, <laughs> but Bartonville really did have. That in the case of Bartonville, um, when the um, French settled in this area in 1680, they founded Fort Creve Coeur, which is across the river and a uh, little north of where Bartonville is now. And in their journals, the officers, the French officers at the fort wrote of the spot that we now call Bartonville as being a Native American place of habitation. We don't know whether it was an established village or if it was simply a burial ground, but we do know that there is human, there was human habitation here at that time. And there has been for thousands and thousands of years. It's on a bluff top. It's overlooking the river. It's a perfect place for people to settle down. I was talking with somebody who likes to puddle around in the, the muck at the side of the river and discover things that the river has carried away. And he found an animal bone and just about a little bit south of Bartonville on the riverbank. And he took it to the museum in Springfield. And they they dated the tool marks on this animal bone to 10,000 years ago. Wow. Yeah. Well, the asylum has been there for quite some time. What made them decide to go ahead and build one there in Bartonville? Oh, this is one of my favorite parts. I'm so glad you asked that. The Peoria State Hospital, or when it was founded, it was known as the Illinois Asylum for the Incurable Insane. This was the brainchild of the Peoria Women's Group. Um, it was founded by uh, Mrs. Barton, the mayor's wife. And this women's group had been going around to the almshouses in the state. Now, almshouses in the late 19th century were horrible places. The worst of them were no better than barns. If you had $25 for a license and an empty barn in your backyard, you could open up an almshouse because the people of that day 
didn't think that the mentally ill could feel cold or heat. Wow, jeez. So there was a lot of abuse going around. Some of the county almshouses weren't too bad, but some of the private almshouses were really, really wretched, horrible places. This women's group decided to form their own asylum, and they donated the land on which the asylum was built. So all of the money that was gathered from the state could go into making the buildings as modern and up-to-date as they possibly could be. They didn't have to spend any money on land. They had enough land to, to make a little nursery. If they wanted trees for landscaping, they just planted a block of trees on the land and pulled from there for their nursery and gardens and whatnot. So the only thing the trustees of the asylum were spending money on was making these buildings as state-of-the-art as they could in 1902. So that's how the asylum came to be, is the, the foresight of the Peoria Women's Club and the Peoria Women's Club saying, you know, we really need an asylum in this area. It'll create jobs. It'll help people. The interesting thing about the Peoria State Hospital is that it was designed right from the jump to be a place for long-term care of the mentally ill. You had other asylums. You had other state hospitals. There was a state hospital in Jacksonville. That was started in 1856, I believe. And that was a place for people to go who could get better, or they were diagnosed as incurable and released. There was no place at that time for the long-term care of the mentally ill who were not going to get better, but still needed people to care for them and give them a place to live. Bartonville was that place. We've read that the original building that was built was castle-like in the style. Yes, the very first building that was put on the hilltop um, in 1898 was built according to what some what's called the Kirkbride plan. There was an architect named Kirkbride that designed asylums for a living. And he felt that very best building that you could put the insane in was one great big building with wings off of it. He said that it would provide better insulation, it would keep everybody together, it was easy for the staff to move about in. There were some advantages to the Kirkbride plan, but it got old-fashioned and out of date very quickly. The problem with this particular Kirkbride building that was built in Bartonville also is that A, it was built over a coal mine, (laughs) and B, it was built out of really shabby, shoddy materials using shoddy workmanship. There is a rumor that the first Kirkbride building was built by a company that had mob ties in Chicago. So Dr. Zeller toured this Kirkbride building before any patients were even admitted to the the hospital. He took one look at this and said, "Uh uh-uh, this is not going to work. I want it torn down. And it was. That Kirkbride building no longer exists. It was torn down almost immediately. There were never any patients in it. Oh, my gosh. So they built the whole thing and then just tore it down. (laughs) Just raised it it and then built something else. Oh, yes. Can you imagine so, nowadays? That would never happen. <laughs> I don't like that house. Tear it down and start over. Yeah. So, but that is exactly what Dr. Zeller said. He said, start over. Now, instead of doing a Kirkbride plan, they built it on something called the cottage plan. Now, this was not even the first cottage plan asylum in Illinois, but the advantages to a cottage system 
are that people with the same affliction are housed together. You have all the epileptics together. You have all, all the alcoholics together. You have all the people suffering from depression together. It, it's, it forms a natural buddy system. You're with people who understand the way you're feeling every single day. The drawback to the Kirkbride plan is you could have somebody who is suffering from mild depression in the same room as a raving schizophrenic, which doesn't do either one of them any good. Mm-mm. With the cottage system, you had people living together that understood each other. And the way that Dr. Zeller put the cottages together was that he put a married couple in charge of each cottage. It made the place feel more homelike. He wanted to give every impression of these people being at home because this was their home. For many people, this was their home. He forbade the use of locks. The only locked wards were the violent wards for the Mm. men and for the women. That was the only ward that was locked. Other than that, the patients were free to come and go as they pleased. He said, these people don't lock their doors at home. Why would we lock them in when they've come to us for help? The only locked wards were the violent ward for the men, violent ward for the women. Well, you've mentioned Dr. Zeller, and from what we've read about him, he just sounds like an amazing man that really wanted not only to understand the mentally ill, but get other people to understand them as well. And not using some of the same techniques that were being used in other places, but unfortunately... He left the asylum for a little while, and then things kind of went awry, I guess. They, it didn't work out really well. That is exactly right. He did leave for a little while to become the superintendent of Alton Asylum. And he was invited back to Bartonville, and he came back, and you would think, okay, Dr. Zeller was a military man. He was not trained as a psychiatrist. He was trained as a physician. He worked in the army. He, he served serving underprivileged children in the Philippines. He was an army man through and through. We have so many photographs of him standing at attention in his dress whites as he is performing his duties as superintendent of Bartonville. So you would think that this military man coming back after an absence and finding that in his absence, the bars had been put back on the windows and patients were still being restrained or being restrained again in straitjackets, contrary to his express opinions. You would think that this military man would storm right in and set things to rights. That's not what happened. Dr. Zeller checked himself into the asylum as a patient. He lived among his patients for three days before he outed himself. And he said, I learned more in those three days about the care of the mentally ill than I had in eight years of being superintendent. The original undercover boss Mm -hmm. kind of type thing. Wow. Mm -hmm. And then he did something even more innovative after that experience. He did. He did. He took the bars off of the windows and he repurposed them into a zoo on the grounds. (laughs) He absolutely forbade the use of any straight jackets, straight gowns, leather handcuffs, shackles, anything like that. The only reason he kept any of those items was for his staff to point to and say, not here, never again, not at this institution. He was known for confiscating straight jackets if patients appeared at the asylum wearing straight jackets. Dr. Zeller would confiscate them. 
that's where he got his collection. And didn't he require a lot of the staff to do the same thing he did so that they could see what it was like to be treated either poorly or nicely? Yes, his, his staff was required to spend a day living as a patient. We have nurses' diaries from later on, from in the middle of the the asylum's history. These diaries tell the story of nurses' training. These nurses were required to go to every cottage and interview every patient. They knew these patients personally. So that's, they, they were better able to care for them because they knew them as people. They weren't just patients. They were people. This must have been a very successful hospital because this is so different than a lot of the other asylums that we've looked into and shared with our listeners where you just had people were basically treated like animals. They were locked up. There were straight jackets. Lobotomy was the standard practice. It's just amazing to hear that they were treating these people like they were humans because they were. Yeah. Yes. That's, that's why I feel it is such a privilege for me to be able to share this history with people. How many buildings were originally on the property there? Uh, The opening day map shows 17 buildings. It very quickly grew. They realized very early on that 17 buildings were not going to be enough. At the height of the asylum's history, there were 63 buildings on the hilltop. There were four dedicated hospitals. There were surgeries performed on the hilltop. In addition to caring for the mentally ill, they also served the indigent population of the area medically. Any Anybody who couldn't afford to go to the hospitals in Peoria came to Bartonville, and they were treated. Thirteen of those buildings are left. There are two buildings that are pretty much in their original state. That would be the Bowen Building, the Administration Building, and the Pollock Hospital, the tuberculosis ward. And those are the two buildings that ghost hunters really focus on, because you can really get a sense of what these buildings were like in the time of the asylum when it was open. Over there, do they still do tours? I know ghost hunters went there, but do do they still do tours of the buildings? We do tours, yes. Um, The Bowen Building has been doing tours pretty much all summer and all fall. I honestly don't know what is going to happen with the Bowen Building. The person that is in charge of it right now, well, will be losing his lease at the end of the year. So I really don't know what's going to happen with the Bowen building past that. The Pollock Hospital, on the other hand, is in very, very good hands. The group that I hang around with likes likes to say that haunts save history. Mm-hmm. And what they mean by that is that if you reel people in with tales of ghostly doings, you can get them interested in the history of a place. The Pollock Hospital serves as the haunted house for the limestone high school jfl every year every october the entire month we do a haunted house people run through there it's purely for entertainment but if you do historic tours there's money in it but it's kind of a trickle if you do a haunted house and you're taking in however many thousands of dollars over the course of the month that's a big chunk of change right there after this year's haunt in october of 2015 That building now has a new roof, a new foundation, a new sprinkler system, and a couple of other new additions, new improvements to the building, just because of that haunted house. 
See, that's what we love about that kind of stuff, because there are people who will decry some of the commercialization that comes into whether you're hosting ghost tours, ghost hunting, a haunted house. And I've always said, you know, that's the best way to make money to keep these buildings alive, because so many of them just get raised. And it's so much history that just goes right down the drain when that happens. Yes, that's what we're terrified of happening with the Bowen building. But uh, yeah, that's exactly right. We have taken... A lot of guff from people in the neighborhood about, oh, how dare you? It's like, oh, what was the phrase? Somebody said we were, it was like tap dancing at Auschwitz, which really, really rubbed me the wrong way. Because this was a place that had entertainment for its patients. These patients would dress up for Halloween. They had Halloween balls. They'd be thrilled to bits to know that we were carrying on that tradition of entertaining people at Halloween. And by doing that, we are helping save the buildings, the buildings where these people lived, where they died. So yeah, I have no problem whatsoever opening up the building to a commercial haunted house. I have no problem whatsoever opening the building to ghost tours because that is an incredibly active building and people have all sorts of fun experiences in it. Well, you mentioned, you know, people died here. There was a lot of death there at the asylum. And I was wondering if you could just share a couple of the stories of some of the deaths that happened there. I know there was some big ones, uh, like Palaga came through. Is that how you say that? Palaga. Palaga. That went through and killed a whole bunch of people. What kind, What is that yeah. exactly? That is... Well, pellagra is a vitamin B deficiency. Okay. It's some sort of nutritional deficiency that causes, oh, it's almost like leprosy. It's really, really horrible. Mm. Um, people's skin turns black. In really severe cases, the limbs, the, the hands, the feet turn black and get sores. There's cause for amputation. Pellagra is a nasty, nasty disease. But very fortunately... It's a nutritional deficiency that can be corrected through diet. So Allegra's horrible, but you can do something about it. Tuberculosis, on the other hand, Mm. was a problem on the hilltop right from the jump. The very first hospital that they built on the grounds filled up very quickly with tuberculosis patients. They also had a tent colony on the ground on which the Pollock Hospital now sits. That was also for the treatment of tuberculosis. They they knew that TB was going to be a problem right from the very get-go. They actually opened up one of the dining halls for housing these TB patients. The hospital overflowed into the dining hall, which sounds horrible, but um, they, they just didn't have any place else to put them. When you look at pictures of the asylum, the picture you'll see most often is the Bowen building. This was the nurse's dormitory, the nurse's classrooms. And it's this gorgeous big old stone building that looks like it has every right in the world to be haunted. However, there are only three deaths that we can trace as happening in the Bowen building. There was a housekeeper who took ill and fell into a diabetic coma, was taken to her room, and died there a few days later. Dr. Zeller himself died in the Bowen building in his third-floor apartment in 1938. And a few months before that, his wife Sophie had passed away in the apartment. So there are only really three deaths that can be attributed to happening in the Bowen building. Now, the Pollock Hospital, just a block away, is an entirely different story. In 1939, there was a doctor working at the hospital named Maxim Pollock, and he made a study. He found that 95% of the patients 
and the staff at the Peoria State Hospital were suffering from some form of tuberculosis, whether it was latent or full-blown, 95% of the people had it. So he said, you know what, we really need, instead of this tent colony, we really need a dedicated TB ward. So it took 10 years, but in 1949, the Pollock Hospital was built and opened in 1950, closed along with the rest of the asylum in 1973. During that period of 23 years, there was an average of three to five deaths a week. It started off as a tuberculosis ward, and at the very end of its history, it was used as a geriatrics ward. And as I mentioned before, before that, there were there was a tent colony on the grounds for the care of tuberculosis patients. So people have been dying of TB on that little patch of ground for a very very long. So that makes the Pollock Hospital one of the most active buildings on the hilltop. Well, we've been building up to this moment, talking about the history and all of the elements involved and the deaths. So now let's talk about some of the hauntings that are reported to be going on there. Absolutely. The Pollock Hospital is incredibly active. You get you get the whole experience there. <laughs> I'm I'm a little biased. I am definitely Team Pollock. (laughs) Um, (laughs) When investigators explore the Peoria State Hospital, and especially the Pollock Hospital, you get to experience the hauntings through every one of your senses. And I do mean every single one of your senses. There have been shadow people sighted in the graveyards and in the halls of the buildings. People have seen full-body apparitions. They've heard footsteps. They've heard sighs. I myself have heard a sigh. We heard um, deep tubercular breathing one time in the hallway. I was there for that, too. The sense of smell comes into play. I was talking with a group of investigators that said that they were sitting in the men's death ward of the Pollock Hospital, and they all of a sudden started smelling something really strange and out of place in this deserted hospital room. They said it smelled oh smelled a little kind of like a pine tree and a little cinnamon mixed in. She said, well, it smelled like Christmas. So I started thinking about that. I said, what would possibly cause that smell in a hospital room? Well, going back to the history for just a moment, Dr. Zeller and his staff were very involved in alternative therapies. He was a great believer in color therapy Mm. and light therapy. And they also could possibly have used herbal therapy. And in herbal medicine, white pine is one of the best chest decongestants there is. Hmm. So I have no doubt that what they were smelling was some long-ago cough syrup or chest liniment. And I was actually filming a show at the Pollock Hospital, and the camera crew and I were walking down the hallway on our way from the men's death ward to some other place in the building. And the camera guy stopped dead in his tracks and he said, OK, why am I smelling a Christmas tree right now? <laughs> and I, I explained it to him. The sense of taste comes into play. Tuberculosis causes lesions on the lungs. And when you cough, those lesions rupture. You cough up blood. blood yeah. Symptom of TB is the red handkerchief. You pop up blood and it's spot, red spots on the white handkerchief. And you know the person just stays away from dying of consumption of tuberculosis. There are some people that have reported tasting blood in their mouths. Wow. The especially when they're coming up the stairs from the morgue into the kitchen. And sometimes that taste is so thick and so coppery that they have to go outside the building and be sick in the bushes. 
That is one of the most amazing I, that's things. I've ever thank goodness. Oh, that is one of the most amazing things I've ever heard of. Because it's one thing to like smell something, but to get that yeah. taste in your mouth, it's almost as if the spirit has come into that person's body and is helping them to experience something they had experienced themselves. Yeah, because like, why else would you have taste? Because smell, everybody can participate in. But like if you have leading in your own mouth, the people around you don't usually taste that, but they could smell the same things that you're smelling. So that is very bizarre. Taste is such an intensely personal mm-hmm. feeling. Exactly. Wow, that's amazing. Thank you for sharing that. <laughs> you bet. I'm happy to. That's um, just a, a really astounding place. Now, do they have specific people that they know are there, or do they just kind of surmise who might be hanging out? There are dozens, maybe even hundreds of spirits that hang out there, but we have pinpointed a few of them. There is a little girl who hangs out in the basement of the Pollock Hospital. She'll appear in the morgue every once in a while, but she usually seems to hang out in the basement apart from the morgue, which was used as a storage area at one point. At one point in that building's history, the storage area was used to store artificial limbs. And this little girl, whom we have named Elizabeth, seems to have passed on at about five years old. She always appears to be about five years old. Um, She walks with a limp, as far as our sensitives have been able to tell. And any EVPs we collect from her seem to have a garbled quality to it. So she she was pretty severely handicapped in this life. Could possibly have had an artificial leg or a bum leg of some sort, which may explain why she likes to hang out in the artificial limb room. But she is very playful. (laughs) She... She enjoys it when people come down with EMF meters. She likes to play with the lights. She likes to to come near the meters and make the lights light up and then back off and watch the lights go down. There is a nastier spirit that hangs out mostly in the morgue of the Pollock Hospital. We think that he was, we can't figure out whether he was a patient or an employee of the asylum, but he was... He was like a dock worker or something. He's a bully. He's got the foulest mouth you can imagine. <laughs> um, <laughs> we asked him one night when we were doing an EVP session with a, a spirit box, we asked him what he wanted, and he said, whores. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess he knew what he wanted, huh? Yeah, yeah. He, was, he, he, he had his list down. That was on the list, whores. <laughs> so, yeah, he's... He's a bully. He likes to press his finger on right in between your shoulder blades on that muscle back there and cause a searing, stabbing pain mm. in the back of your neck. And he won't let up until you go upstairs and leave his territory. He is quite the bully. There is. Um, with him, have you personally encountered him? Like, has he done anything to you or? He has never physically attacked me, but I was privileged to be doing a spirit box session down in the storeroom of the Pollock Hospital. And we had this guy coming through on the spirit box and he, there was an investigator that was with us that night that had, he and this spirit had had a couple of tussles before. And the spirit called this guy out. There's a big, heavy, metal door in the morgue 
that leads to a very tiny little storeroom. Seth actually slammed this door. We heard it from the other room. None of us saw it, but we heard this heavy metal door slam. So that was really quite unnerving. That's the only run-in I've ever had with him. Well, thank goodness, huh? That's bad through the enough. spirit box. I haven't, I've been privileged to be present at a couple of spirit box conversations with this spirit. But no, he's never physically attacked me. Moving on to more pleasant things, we are pretty sure that both Dr. Zeller and Sophie are still hanging around in the Bowen building. Oh, I was wondering, because you would think he'd be so attached to that place that he wouldn't want to leave. Well, especially if he was willing to come back a patient just to try to make it better, you know. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I was was walking around the grounds of the Pollock Hospital with a couple of people, and we were all gushing over Dr. Zeller. (laughs) And one of the people that was there with us was a very, very powerful sensitive who was visiting from Los Angeles. And somebody made the comment, and it's always women who are so attracted to Dr. Zeller, maybe because he was so encouraging and empowering of the women staff that worked under him. So we were all gushing over Dr. Zeller. And somebody mentioned wanting to get a tattoo of Dr. Zeller's portrait on her arm. (laughs) And medium started laughing. And she said, in kind of an embarrassed little voice, she said, Dr. Zeller's here. And he said, that's really not necessary. (laughs) (laughs) At least it was going to be on her arm and not some other place on her body. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. I think he would have been even more embarrassed about another place. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, he's, he's still there. He's definitely watching over his asylum. Well, very cool. Sylvia, where can people find out more about you and, get a hold of your books? Well, I have a nifty website called, oddly enough, sylviashultz.com. That's S-H-U-L-T-S. And when you're there, you can find information about hunting demons. You can also find information about fractured spirits, hauntings at the Peoria State Hospital. The other wonderful thing that you can encounter at sylviashultz.com is a lovely little podcast called Lights Out. And that is basically people telling me fun stories, true ghost stories, and me putting them on the air for other people to enjoy. There is also a Fractured Spirits fan page on Facebook. Now, when you're reading through this book and you come across a little cartoon ghosty in the margins of the book, that's your signal that there's extra fun stuff on the Internet. I did the research for this book and I came across so many EVPs and videos and photographs that I wanted to find a way to incorporate them into the book so that other people could experience them. So if there's a little cartoon ghosty where I'm talking about an EVP, you can actually go to the Fractured Spirits fan page on Facebook or to sylviashultz.com and you can listen to that EVP or watch that video as you're reading the book. Wow, that's that's very cool and very innovative. That's that's really, really a neat idea. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I like to do is recommend podcasts to our listeners. And I've been listening to Sylvia's Lights Out podcast from the very beginning, and I've really enjoyed it. As you guys can tell from the interview that we've done with her, she's very similar in style to both Denise and I, where it's as if you're just sitting around the table talking about 
history and the paranormal. And she obviously has a huge respect for both of those things. It's not just the, although she was on Ghost Hunters, we sometimes make fun of them as <laughs> saying, oh, what was that? And did you hear that? That, kind of thing. <laughs> 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 that she actually puts a human touch to that stuff and that it's not just about the, oh, did something touch me or did you hear that and that you, kind of thing. You know, one of these days we're going to meet one of the ghost hunter guys and they're going to be like, oh, you're Denise and Diane and we're going to be so embarrassed. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't watch those shows. So when I was invited to have an interview on the show, I wasn't starstruck at all because I had no idea who these people were. <laughs> that was probably a good thing. Yeah, pretty much. I have always felt in my writing and in my interviews and just anything that I do, if I'm having fun, everybody else is most likely having fun too. And I want people to have fun. I want people to learn and I want people to have this experience and share this experience with me. That is what is important to me. All right. Well, you have a fabulous evening. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thank, thank you. And thank you, Denise. And it was an absolute pleasure. Have a good evening. All right. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. The care at the Peoria State Hospital was unlike what we have heard about at other asylums. Is it actually the positive feelings felt at Peoria that are causing some of the spirits to make this their home in the afterlife? Is the Peoria State Hospital haunted? That is for you to decide. Sounds like a fascinating place to visit, and I definitely would love to hang out with Sylvia sometime. And oh, absolutely. That was a wonderful interview that we had with her, and just so much knowledge there, and I'm definitely going to check out her books. And she did mention that she is working currently on a book about a former resident at the Peoria State Hospital. This woman went through hell and back again until she got to the Peoria State Hospital. It's an amazing story to hear. And we thought that we would share that with our executive producers as a bonus cast. For those of you who aren't already executive producers, it's only $5 a month, the cost of a cup of coffee. And you can get the upcoming bonus cast where we'll have that story with Sylvia Schultz. And she'll discuss also the hauntings that are related to this former patient as well. And then you also get access to all of the previous Haunted True Crime. I believe we're up to 12 of those and other bonus casts that we've done. So That's where a lot of our bloopers will show up as well. Exactly. <laughs> our last outtakes was pretty, it was a pretty long one and pretty funny. We want to thank you guys for joining us for this. We hope that you are coming into the new year full of all kinds of anticipation. I will tell you, we have some goals for this show for this new year. And we've decided to shoot a little bit higher because last year I'd written down on a piece of paper, some of you who follow us on Facebook know this already, where I'd said that I wanted to get at least 100,000 downloads by December 31st, 2015. And how many did we actually get, Diane? By the uh, December 31st, we had 212,351 downloads. Wow, that just like blows my mind. That is so surreal that that many people have downloaded the show because we never in our wildest dreams thought that many people would come listen. So no, it more than doubled the goal that I had. So when you guys set your goals, shoot high, shoot for the stars. So I have shot pretty high for the stars for this next year. We'll see if we get there. But it was an incredible year for us. We've brought on a lot of new listeners. The show is expanded. We got the research crew. Meetups. Yeah. I mean, that, it's just we've met some of our listeners, you know, that that we didn't know until history goes bump. And 
and just the emails and the online friendships that have started to form as well. It's just been a really, really incredible year. Indeed. So we got exciting things coming in 2016. We have our 100th episode coming up this month as well. Yes, we do. And I'm kind of noodling around what kind of fun stuff we'll do for that. I'm not quite sure yet. We're glad you guys tuned in for this one. I have been your host, Diane. And this has been Denise. You take care now. Bye-bye. Executive producers of this episode have been... David Ann, Melissa, Levi, Nicole, Jade, Sharon, Cricket, April, Katie, Stephen, Heather, Amy, Tanya, Leanna, Laura, Seth, Tracy, Josh, Barbara, Ashley, Griffin, David, Wendy, Roger, Dan, Janice, John, Laura, Homeworks, and brand new executive producers are Jenny Lee Watt, Liz Evans, Lana John, and Stuart Putney. Thank you. Society's Rise and societies fall. When the time comes, one society steps forward to build a better future. The Wicked Library, Kettle Whistle Radio, Night Story Podcast, Prog Watch, Red Horse Radio, The Lift, History Goes Bump. Listen. The M Writing Podcast. Society 13. Rebuilding society. One podcast at a time. Want to keep the spooks away? Give us a review.